Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Balance at Wellbeing podcast. For this next hour, we're going to be talking about food as medicine, in particularly a practical approach to how you can support yourself with food. Um, before we get any further, I'd love to introduce Lucy Darhill, who is on the call with us. She's standing in for Sam. Lucy um, works, uh, Lucy is a youth worker working in public health. She's a public health advocate, presenter, and workshop facilitator, and brings with her a wealth of experience from a variety of industries, from media to healthcare. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> a little bit about myself. I'm a complementary health and wellbeing practitioner and educator, working both in the clinical setting and in corporate. So whilst we have this time together, really encourage you to post any questions that you have in the chat box, in the question box on your, on your screen. Everyone's in listen-only mode, um, and this helps facilitate a conversation with you all and to really personalise um, in context what we'll be sharing today. So anything that you do add, um, everyone will be able to relate to in their own way. So really encourage that. So Lucy, what does that mean to you when you hear the, the term food as medicine? Um, it reminds me of the fact that uh, there's that bit of me that's, that is at the mercy sometimes of food cravings. And there's that conversation that goes on about in the internal conversation where I know, <clears throat> excuse me, what I, I should eat but I am very often pulled into eating other things. And I, I know there's an amazing conversation that my body has with me very clearly going, no, really, I don't think you should have eaten that. Um, and so I guess it's, it's about seeing that the medicine is the conversation that my body's having with me about the food that I'm putting in. And yeah, I think there's a great conversation to be had about how to deal with that voice that is probably not quite as supportive as the body that says, no, it's fine, eat it, it's good. Mm, so true. And, and just with a point you made there, I, I, I don't know about everyone else, but how often do we have thoughts about food? Um, you know, when you think of your day, et cetera, of what, what am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner or snacks? Or just feeling like eating is a distraction. Um, so yeah. when you actually look at it that way, there's just so many thoughts that are going on in our head about food. Yeah, and it really dominates so much of our lives at the moment because, you know, the, some of the highest rating shows in the past um, few years have been food related. So um, a lot of advertising, a lot of you want engagement at, at, at events that we go to or, or meetings, they always make food a focus. Um, so it's really difficult to consider doing anything without actually snacking and eating. And the mm. permanent snacking, I think, is really doing us quite a lot of harm. Yeah, because little are we thinking, am I actually hungry? Often the food's there, so it's the association with food. And that's mm. what I, I, I love that we'll be exploring today is why so often people find that diets don't actually work. You know, you can have the best intentions to be on a diet, New Year's resolutions, et cetera, or, you know, can sustain it for a certain period of time. But what gets in the way of that? Um, so that, that, that's an aspect that we can look at as well. But again, very guided by um, questions if you want anything in particular to be addressed or, or brought about this, 
this time, please go for it. And then if we I'll look at what's on. When, when any yeah. questions come in, I'll jump in with them. I'll let you know. Beautiful. And then if we look at food and what's available in, in the marketplace and um, how there's just always so much new opportunities classified under health foods, new trends, etc. So, you know, it's a quite a big market in itself. But within that, within what's available to us and our eating pat patterns, which are often influenced by our lifestyle, so if we're busy, then often we'll be making food choices based on that. Or if we're not giving ourselves the time to go to the supermarket to have the food in the fridge, especially if you've got a busy week, et cetera. So little of that relationship, I suppose, with food is actually coming from what is my body telling me it wants to eat? Ideally, if I had all food sources here, if I was fully equipped, et cetera, what would I feel like eating? I don't know if you've felt that, Lucy, um, with your relationship with food at all. Yes. Uh, look, my relationship food has been very, uh, been very much around stress, I would say. So when I worked um, in one particular office job, I would always have a snack at my desk. Um, and I started noticing that when I wasn't enormously at ease with what with, with what I had to do I I mean I hesitate saying the word anxious but that's what I think it came down to when I started getting anxious I would eat and so for example it might be nuts it might be a, a muesli bar so in in essence they might have been healthy but I I would be shoveling the nuts or the muesli bar in my mouth and I'd only finish one biscuit and I'd start another and I just found that the but the way I was eating, what I was eating was really um, uh, just distracted, I guess, by the way I was um, work at work and, and not really handling what I was trying to do. So that I mean, that was one of the biggest things that I noticed was the anxiety around my eating and eating to not to suppress that in a way to give me the energy I thought it was to keep going when I was tired but actually it was to kind of numb down the anxiety feeling mm. yeah so true so if we look at even the volumes that we're eating you know be it a pattern of eating too much or being a pattern of depriving with food it's kind of coming from the same place because picking up on your point of food can so be a distraction and it can also be an easy um, Thing that we use to not feel what's going on so if we are mm. anxious um great you just eat a favorite bowl of pasta and just eat quite a lot then it takes your mind off things so to speak for for a little time mm. or you know if we're if we're nervous if we're um or if we're tired even if you're going for the sugar because you're feeling like a pick-me-up mm. but the little i have noticed katie that quite a lot of the low fat food the gluten-free food that it's really high in sugar and mm. so it gives you that false sense of um of a high but then there's a massive crash that comes afterwards which then perpetuates wanting to eat something else which means that you overeat quicker than you necessarily can recognize that that's why you're you're overeating because what you're eating is sort of I guess they call them empty carbs mm. and that that's a good point because it is such a big market healthy food 
but are we actually looking at well, what's in that? And often that's the case. If they're reducing the fat, then the sugar content increases, vice versa, because they're trying to bulk up. And it was just astounding the other day, I was looking to buy a sauce to go in a meal. So I was trying to find one without sugar. And, you know, for something that was savory, it, it all had sugar in it. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it is, it is uh, people say, that sugar is not an issue. It is a massive issue. I'd say um, I would, you know, I think probably a great couple of topics for this is sugar and caffeine. Um, sugar is, uh, it, it offers us such a false high and such a false sense of being okay and something being tasty. But the the impact in our body is such that the crash that comes afterwards um, means that we very often will overeat or eat a whole load of things that we wouldn't have eaten um, and therefore the healthy food becomes an addiction that feeds uh, I mean it's just self-perpetuating it's it's I think it's going to come out I mean as as the you know industries start to be a bit more honest I think it really will come out as something particularly what you're eating at your desk or what you've got in your ca local canteen um, in your building where you can't go anywhere else there's just such a high sugar content in everything healthy or not it's it's really rare to find something that doesn't have either um, you know lots of sugar or very high honey content even you know but it's still going to give you that massive hit. Mm. So that's I suppose a, a start with more and more coming out on the market is to start actually having a look at the ingredients because as, as I didn't realise how many of the sources, I, I actually couldn't find one so I used something else and um, mm. prepared things in a different way. So things that you just would presume are healthy and, and have a lower content of those items that you're talking about to actually have a look at it, get familiar with what's in it. Uh, and also the marketing of products, it can look quite healthy, the actual mm -hmm. branding and the packaging, et cetera. But, you know, taking that responsibility to start evaluating the ingredients a bit more. And especially being busy people and, and families, the kids' snacks, um, you know, we, we have all intentions to want to feed our, our kids well. Uh, but that, that's something that, yeah, a lot slipping in that way too with the lowering of the fat, increase, increasing of the sugar, et cetera. So when you actually look at some of the products with the sugar content, they're actually the same as something that's not branded as healthy or yeah. sometimes they can actually have more. Mm. Mm. And that's quite depressing because you think you're making a really good decision and it, it turns out that it's not a great decision at all. Uh, one of the things you've touched on there is, you know, making that, that dinner the night before. Um, I always think it's quite cool to make extra and then maybe have some of that for breakfast so that you're not necessarily going for classic meals at classic times, but you're feeding yourself in a way that, you know, if you get to, if you, if you get to work and you're in a rush, then at least you've got something that's sustaining you so that you're not looking to go to the cafe too early um, that you can you know you've you've looked after yourself right from the get-go or from the night before you've planned your next day's meal yeah or also as you're saying um, cooking up larger volumes and then freezing them for dinners when you know you're going to be home from work late etc yeah. so a, lot, a lot about what we're talking about is 
if we're wanting to use food as medicine, then we've got to take a step back from that and have a look at our preparation, have a look at our lifestyle, so to speak, from a day-to-day -day basis and how much space are we actually allowing then to have on hand that healthier food option. Um, it could be even taking a container of nuts to work so that if you're, if you're in a workplace that has a lot of birthday cakes and biscuits or different events, meetings, et cetera, have that so that you've got your stash of what supports you and your food choices especially when you know you're going to be hungry yeah. um, that, that that's a great tip so um if we're wanting to change some of this then you know we have to also make space yeah and on weekends cooking up more food or having a look even at the responsibilities within the family of who can take over some of that stuff or share it around a bit so that um you know there is food in the fridge um, and, and that you're supported. No perfectionism here, but um, at least going practically what needs to change so that I have on hand what I need. I think also what you've shared here about food being medicine. I mean, we, we know that it is because food is, is one of the biggest contributors to lifestyle illnesses. What we eat definitely has an effect on our on our mental and our physical health there's a huge amount of research that goes into that but, but when we feel like we're at the mercy of the marketing companies then we are going to be caught in that spiral of just you know eating what they say is a, a quick evening family meal um you know i've 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 definitely fallen for um you know going into the supermarket and going right what's for dinner tonight i haven't even thought about it right that looks like a good family meal uh, and taking that home but if i can just turn around the um process of last minute eating and consider on a sunday if if your work week starts on a monday around the say school week as well if it all starts on a sunday then just allowing a couple of hours on a Sunday to really consider what your shopping list is and then shopping with purpose and just having a rough guide of what you're going to have in your week so that there's a little bit of planning that goes in to what you can do at the end of the day. Um, because the end of the day is where you're most likely to eat, overeat and eat junk and that affects your sleep. So there's that it really is medicinal to be able to just take a pause when you have capacity in your working week to take a pause to really consider what's the medicine you can bring to yourself that week. Yeah, beautiful advice. And in that too, week to week being different, if you've got, um, if perhaps your work requires you to travel, um, you know, just making sure again that you've got food on hand or snacks on hand that support you so if you're walking past a cafe with all the donuts and everything else that it's not too tempting um, but likewise what what I hear from people and I felt this myself is if we are cooking um, for others um, be that family or, or um, friends etc how much of our cooking day to day is based around other people's food preferences and when we do that we're leaving ourselves behind and you know if you're not if you're not if your body's asking for something and you're not giving to it it will actually start seeking it somewhere else in a, in other forms so if you're not eating enough protein for example or if you're not feeling fulfilled with your meal you're going to be much more tempted to snack and and want to yeah. get it from other food choices so 
it, it's actually not taking responsibility here. We think we're, we're doing the right thing as a parent um, by considering everyone else. It's actually back the front that if we're considering what we need and then also everyone else to a certain extent within that food uh, variety, then we're gonna be less likely to go for the sugar, et cetera. Then we're actually gonna feel better about ourselves. We're not gonna be as racy, et cetera. So we're actually gonna be more present to be with family or friends or whoever we're with at the time. So it's it's just interesting to see the ripple on effect with food. Cause I know if, I, if I'm tired, if I haven't looked after myself to the level that I need to, I'm going to want to have sugary foods, be that too much fruit or be it whatever it happens to be. And then I get really tired really quickly. It's like a sedative, especially if you haven't had much sugar and then you have it, you get to actually start to feel the full effects that it's had on your body. And it's literally, it's like having a sleeping pill. So when yeah. I do that, then I'm not available. I'm not there for my kids to the level that I want to have discussions with. So you start to see it's not just something you're doing to your body. It, has, it definitely has a ripple on effect with the quality that you're offering. And that actually helps me at times when I'm wanting to go for something to go, you know what? No, I don't feel like knocking myself out with that. I actually want to be here having the conversations that I'm having and not feel lethargic. I don't know if that, may, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a huge amount of sense. And what's so interesting is, is the, the, it's such a responsible way to approach it because you're not just eating for you you're eating in consideration of everyone it's like having um it's it's like saying okay so um a lot of people react to potato for example um my husband's a great example of this he just can't eat it it sends him to sleep drives him bonkers because he loves his potato he loves his chips and he loves his um, mashed potato but every time he has it within 15 minutes he's asleep and it's a family joke now um, <laughs> and so what's really good that the others in the family they like their mashed potatoes so when we cook a meal we'll very often have a few things out and then everyone takes the bits that they like and enjoy and um, what it does is it doesn't impose that everyone has to have everything, but um, it also says, I'm still going to have the food that I like. So you're not cooking four different meals. You're cooking one meal, but you're giving options within that, which teaches everyone or I mean, maybe that's children in the house. It teaches them how to make choices, but make responsible choices that are going to have a you know, a consequence on how you feel. Um, but they also get to recognize that that um, that there's that there's a responsibility in what they're choosing and that there's a consequence in what they're choosing. Yeah, love that. I've, we definitely had a transition in our family as well in that um, I realized what I was saying before that I was accommodating everyone's food preferences, but I wasn't actually feeding my body what it needs. And the, other, the rest of the family, they don't eat seafood, um, whereas I, I really need that. It works well for me. So I'll just cook two different protein um, aspects and then have the side dishes. And uh, it, I, at first I thought, oh, that's just going to be so much extra work. But actually, it actually isn't. And you, you start to feel so much better because you're actually, you know, if it's a, a night that you actually feel like eating lighter, then you've got that that opportunity within that and also for those that are old enough in the family you know helping with that helping with the preparation helping with the cooking um, as well it's it's um it's a beautiful thing not only are they learning skills for cooking but um it, it shares what's needed around 
It's real. It's real medicine, isn't it? Because then our nervous systems can settle because we're not doing it all. Uh, and working is is hard work when you go home and then you have to juggle a whole load of other responsibilities. It's worth mm-hmm. seeing it as all as one, not just what we put in our mouth when you talk about food as medicine. It's not just the end result of the food going in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the preparation. It's the um, the thought process about what we're going to eat. All of those things become part and parcel of the food as medicine. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking at food as medicine, another aspect on that is our portion sizes. Because quite often you can just get used to dishing up the same amount. And often that subconsciously is based on how we were brought up with food and how our parents um, served food, etc. But do we stop and do we go, actually, I've got a big day tomorrow. I'm actually feeling tired. I don't actually feel like having a big meal because my body's going to have to digest that. I just want to have something lighter. So when you start to bring that consideration, it breaks up that kind of mechanical approach to food to actually stopping and feeling and assessing what's needed. So the same goes, um, it was a few years ago now, but I was um, yeah, quite a few years ago dishing up the family meals and I'd do that and I'd put the portions on the plate and I just stopped and had a realisation and went, how do I know how hungry they are? (laughs) And if I'm putting all of this on their plate, then there's an expectation that they've got to eat it. So it was really liberating to go, actually, no, well, you know, everyone can can get their own. Um, They were still quite young at that stage. But um, that was great because it teaches that responsibility that you're talking about, Lucy, but not only with ourselves, because often these shifts in the family have to come from us realising something that perhaps didn't support or that could support better. And then you're introducing that to others, those that you live with as well. So it's just breaking down that mechanical approach to start to stop and and look at how you do things um, when it comes to food preparation and eating. Yeah, you know, I hadn't considered that whole what, I mean, I certainly was brought up with you finish what's on your plate. Um, and of, of course, my my uh, mother had the great line, you know, there's a child starving in Africa, you will eat what's on your plate. Um, and and I did, you know, and I, I, I always finished everything that was on my plate full or not. Um, which actually now when you look at the um, the obesity rates and the issues with diabetes is a very bad you know, mantra to have. Um, so the what you've offered your kids is a is a whole freedom of uh, choice and expression, and uh, actually letting their bodies be the part that gives the um, the information as opposed to their head. Because mm, we've just got so many autopilot patterns that we're not even aware of. Yeah. And um, another big one is using food as rewards. And you mightn't even think that you do that, but it's amazing how you can get to the end of the week and say, oh, you know, I've had a big week and I'm just going to, I'm just going to get some treats for Friday night. Or, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it could be just, you know, got halfway through the day, you know, I, I deserve to have this without going, actually, you know how that's going to make me feel? Is that actually a reward? And then, um, yeah, my my mum definitely, you know, it'd be a big thing. Oh, I got you a treat for afternoon tea. So yeah, <laughs> I started to realise that I, you know, I I did have that, and then started to see that in society generally. You know, the celebrations, birthdays, the sugary sweet stuff, and so the association of food with reward 
And then, you know, if we're looking at diets and what gets in the way, all of this is, is such an impact because if we're not starting to observe it, realise it, shift it, then how can a diet actually work? Because those, those thoughts and those feelings are impulsing the food choices that we're making. Absolutely. And understanding, you know, the, the marketing, again, the marketing push on this because there was no such thing as afternoon tea until um, the marketing people needed to get people into the shops in the afternoon because people would buy their their uh, morning and their and do their shopping in the morning at lunch and then they would shut and they needed to help these shop owners have a reason for staying open later and so they introduced afternoon tea and that's where you got um, uh, sweets and chocolates like Milky Way which was light enough to for a treat but not going to spoil your dinner or a finger of fudge is just enough to give the kids a treat uh, but it's not going to spoil their dinner it was such clever marketing and mm. it just kept going so you know now we we have afternoon tea treats and and if we you know, if we don't have an afternoon tea treat we feel like we're denying ourselves and that's where the whole diet and the you know the the victimization of having to to um deny yourself the treats in order to lose weight for your whether it's your mental or your physical health it's it's very it's very um the 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 hook is very deep in us from things that are completely outside us that we've just subliminally taken on. Very interesting. Mm, I didn't know that about afternoon tea. That, that is very interesting. Yeah. Makes sense, I doesn't know. it? It does. And you listen to some of the adverts and it's, it's completely like that. I would love to, to ask um, some of the listeners what, what elements of their um, food and eating what elements do they see as medicine um, either good or bad medicine it would be just really fascinating to have you know some more voices and hear hear what they think about it mm, yeah so type, type away and whilst you're considering that um, to also have a look at we talked about beliefs that are getting in the way of food we talked about um, uh, how we've been brought up with food what were the customs I suppose in your family what could be getting in the way now causing you frustration that you didn't actually realize was a pattern so just to take a moment just to reflect and and write down for yourself what are that what are those aspects because if you leave this time with just one or two realizations about what's getting in the way of your eating that that's really cool because that makes a big difference and from working with just those few aspects you start to then see the next step and the next step because you've instigated your own healing in relation to starting to eat as with food as medicine versus I'm hungry, I'm just going to eat this. Mm. I tell you, I remember um, I remember growing up thinking that, you know, you, the breakfast was uh, bread or it was cereal. And then when you look at what's in cereal, it's really high sugar content, even the ones that say they're healthy, like, um, I don't know, are we allowed to say brand names on here? Seems quite cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, there's like so many, though. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the ones that are really, you know, health related, you kind of got to read the sugar content in them because yeah. they were quite exposed as being very high sugar. Um, and there was a there have been some fabulous programs on sugar that have looked at breakfast cereals and replaced 
the meal with sugar cubes oh my goodness you never look at it the same way again and that's where I started going you know what I think I'd be safe for having my bolognese for breakfast or my um you know fish curry I had fish curry this morning for breakfast it was really good but I haven't had time to have lunch today and I actually still don't feel hungry it fit Mm -hmm. uh, it feels so much better in my body because I didn't get a spike at the start of my day but my family would have said you know what are you eating that for breakfast and you must have lunch if you don't have lunch you're never going to make it through the afternoon whereas I might have something else to eat at about four o'clock and that will do me for the evening Um, because I've found that if I eat at kind of eight o'clock and I go to bed at half past nine, ten o'clock, I'm I'm just feeling that my food is still digesting. So, you know, the time of day that we eat is possibly a conversation, Katie, as well. Like what are the norms for when what time you eat and how debilitating is that if you want to see food as medicine? Love what you're offering, Lucy, because we have this set program, you know, you often hear people saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but where does that come from? Because if you've had a good sized dinner and you've gone to bed, so you're not using energy, you're sleeping and your body's doing a lot of work when it sleeps, but when you get up, you might still feel quite full from the meal that you had the night before and need to get into your day of activity before you're actually feeling hungry. Yet if we're just adopting that as something we've heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day and then you're overriding your body that's actually probably perhaps saying I don't actually need to have breakfast whereas someone else might wake up really hungry in the morning or may have a light dinner or an early dinner as you say and then they're going to need that food so often it can be a bit of an excuse meal time because I know I I do love eating and I've had to very much work at this myself and see where I was numbing myself with food but rather than going oh great it's an excuse it's breakfast time I can eat even though I might actually be hungry or lunchtime I can eat and dinner etc so it just it just really brings a depth doesn't it to looking at actually what what do I need in the way of fuel source and when do, when do I need that rather than the typical hours of the clock and trying to fit into that? I've also noticed that, um, I mean, there's a lot of research that says two hours before you go to bed, um, you, you know, you should eat, uh, no, you should finish eating at least two hours before you go to bed. That makes huge amounts of sense to me. But when you look at some of the fad diets that have been going around, there's that 5-2, which is where you... Um, eat for five days and you fast for two days. Essentially, if you leave enough space between when you stop eating and when you start eating, that the whole purpose of that is a fast. Uh, I was saying about eating two hours before and then you've got the 5-2 diet. So um, that's probably why it cut out because it doesn't, you know, like that's a hard thing to hear. But the 5-2 diet is (laughs) that you um, fast for two days of the week. But if you eat, if you stop eating early enough in your evening, 
say, for example, seven o'clock and you don't eat after that. And by the time you eat again in the morning, say at seven o'clock, that's your fast. Your digestive system, if you're sleeping, has been able to process everything that you've eaten. So we don't need these extreme forms of diet. We just need mm. to understand that our body needs time to process. And if we can just honor the, the process that it's doing, then it it doesn't need the extremes of the diets. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that you introduced the extreme because that's another aspect why people struggle with dieting as such um, is, is that you can go from eating in a certain way and then you've got a kind of idea in your head of what a healthy eating program is or you've had something um, tailored for you in that tailoring is it actually tailored for you in consideration to where your eating patterns have been or is it just a diet that you found from somewhere that isn't actually tailored to you what's happening in your body any conditions that you might be have, having etc or your food cravings you know making it quite unique um, to what you're experiencing in your body and with food um, because if it is such a vast extreme it's a bit cruel it's like I've been yeah. doing this. I've been getting through with my chocolate every day, my wine at night, um, my three three teaspoons of um, sugar in my coffee, fruit juice, whatever. Did you know that fruit juice has like 13 or 14 teaspoons of sugar? That that's, A lot of people don't know that. So they'll go for fruit juice thinking that it's got less sugar than um, soft drinks when sometimes it could be the same. Anyway, just had to throw that in. No, so, it's true. And it, it yeah. also... The fruit juice and the the others have caffeine in them. So again, one mm. of the things that they talked about for sleep is don't eat it after two o'clock. Don't have anything caffeinated and really cut the sugar right down after two because then you sleep better and then you eat more consciously. So top tips. Mm. Um, we have had a question, Katie. Any, t any tips for food for helping with brain fog? Yeah. What do you reckon? Well, sugar is a big one for brain fog. Um, and, and that's, again, we've just got to make it practical and real for where we're all at. But if we've been eating a certain way, you, you get to a stage where you actually don't feel the consequences of the food in your body because you're just used to it. And it's not until you within yourself go, look, I know I'm eating too much sugar or I'm having too much alcohol because there's a lot of sugar in alcohol or caffeine or whatever it happens to be for you, you'll, you'll know where to start with it. And then if you start to cut it back, it's really interesting what you start to see. Remember when I, um, quite, quite, quite a while back now, I just knew that I was using coffee and I only had one coffee a day, but I'm quite sensitive with feeling the effect of food and it would just make me racy. And I realized that by 10 o'clock in the day, I was actually using that to pep me up. I went, I, I don't want that. I don't want to have that kind of relationship with something. So I stopped having the coffee I had quite severe headaches for two weeks and I noticed my heart rate did shift within that time. The brain frog fog that I used to experience around that 10 o'clock, that started to lift, et cetera. But it was quite significant to think from one coffee a day to have headaches for two weeks as that was clearing out of my body. Mm. So, um, I always you know, feel that it's what, you, what you've just described is the body has got used to a particular way of functioning. Mm. 
of processing what you're putting in it. So the brain has got used to um, coping, I guess, with with uh, additional challenges compared to the clarity that it would normally have. Um, all of our normals are going to be really different. What triggers me is going to be so different to what triggers you, Katie, or what triggers um, Carmen, for example, who's asked this question. So the suggestion might be write yourself a little food diary. When, when, don't change anything, just write yourself a food diary and start making a note of how you feel when you notice the, the um, brain fog. Make a note of kind of what came before it. Um, it's not a difficult thing to do, but it does take a dedication to actually want to get to the bottom of the brain fog or the foods that are, don't sit well in your body. Um, and it might be that you decide to do a diet and an elimination diet and then reintroduce foods you could go to that but you wouldn't need to go to that it would just by doing the food diary you're building a relationship with your body and the food and your brain will start clocking um what what it likes and what it doesn't like if that makes sense rather than just being natural um automatic when i feel the brain fog i automatically go for another coffee because i've got to finish this this uh, project i've got to deliver this uh this piece of work by four o'clock today i haven't got time for brain fog and in addition following on to that um lucy assessing how you feel when you're eating certain food, but also have a look at where your times in your day are that you might lack energy or feel really tired or feel racy. And then to start to go, okay, well, what perhaps have I eaten before that, that that's making me feel that way? Or what's come up? Is it that I'm stressed? I might've had a meeting and it, um, I got agitated or I'm feeling overwhelmed, et cetera. So clocking what's happening in your day as well when you're when you're having those different feelings and then you know that how the food's affecting that as well so it's your emotions that you're feeling as to what emotions might be triggering wanting to eat certain things or thinking that you're hungry when you actually stop and go actually I'm not hungry I'm just wanting a distraction so quite often when you feel that having a glass of water or moving your body it might be that you've just been sitting at your desk the whole day and a bit of movement would just help break up the thought process of wanting to eat. They, they can be um, handy tips. Mm. Yeah, what a great suggestion, Katie. The, just the getting up from your desk, when you feel that, get up from your desk, walk to the kitchen, get yourself a glass of water, walk back. And if you are aware that how you walk is part and parcel of clearing the fog and rehydrating your body is something that you know is really helpful just you know just in case that actually that's part of why you've got the fog because you're dehydrated um oh the 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 opportunity to reset and rebalance is enormous in that in what you shared mm. there there was a study that they did recently on dehydration and it was in an office setting and they were just doing testings and it was amazing most I think, but I can't remember how many were in the group, but most of those were dehydrated. And because um, if we're if we're using mainly coffee or tea as source of water, that actually takes out that hydration benefit too. It reduces it significantly. So you know, there's nothing like fresh, clean water. Having a jug on your desk, because again, you might want to have to get up as many times, but if you've got it there, 
And again, it's just equipping yourself to be supported with your food choices and likewise with having water accessible so that you don't get to that afternoon just feeling a bit, because that can contribute to brain fog as well. So quite a significant contributor to brain fog dehydration. Very true. And, you know, the big plus of that is that it's going to encourage you also to go to the loo, which is not a bad thing because that mm. means you leave your desk again, which is good to lower your stress level. So all of this, just drinking water, so many benefits. And you know what? doesn't cost anything. Easy. No. <laughs> um, I, just on a side note for the stress level, um, I, I read a, a fabulous study which talked about the um, effect that not going to the loo has on your productivity and on your and being dehydrated. Those two things had um, on your body and your productivity. So where you think that you're just going to push through and just send one more email or just do one more document or just answer one more question before you go to relieve your bladder as your body is screaming at you. Um, when they looked at the productivity level, it completely dropped and they couldn't concentrate and they were more likely to make mistakes than if they just got up and went to the loo and came back um, because the blood pressure goes up because the body's saying, I need to go, you're not letting me go. Um, I don't know how to function. I'm going to take all of the anything that is not essential. I'm going to need to pull that in and actually make sure that I can keep um, making sure that I don't wet myself. And then, you know, and then it all falls apart until you actually go. When I explain that to teenagers, you suddenly get that you, when you need to go, you need to go. But so I'm sharing it on this forum as well, because I think personally it's been the thing that once you start clocking, you start noticing that you cannot concentrate without enough water. But the water also makes you get up from your desk and go for a walk, which is great for screen time um, and for mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So I do, I, I'm working in a few different corporations and um, introducing wellbeing programs and it was really beautiful one recently. There's two teams that they would have, they'd make sure they work. There were actually two teams of men and it was just great that they were so committed to at lunchtime, they'd go for a walk, they'd eat their lunch and then they'd go together and they just loved it. Actually really productive, you know, talked about different things during that time. And um, they said, well, we rarely miss that walk because we've realised the benefit that we can feel from having that walk and how it really makes us feel much better in the rest of the afternoon. So we might feel that we're time poor with, with um, you know, having that exercise or that movement, but even just 10 minutes or yeah, getting together with a colleague or a friend before work or after work, et cetera. And why we're mentioning this in relation to food and food is medicine is the more you support yourself in your different areas of your life, be it sleep, be it exercise, be it food, it, it propels the next. So it's like you're already imprinting something positive. So then you're going to be less likely to go for something that doesn't work for you because you're feeling better within yourself. Absolutely. That is when when I knew we were going to do this together, I just thought that's the one thing that I have learned from paying more attention to my self-care, because this is all about balance and well-being. The more balance and well-being you, be, you bring into your life on a day-to-day -day basis, the more your food choices change 
and your exercise change and your relationship with sleep changes. It it all nothing is done in isolation. So uh, can't compartmentalize. Absolutely. And it's so important because when you know, when you evaluate and personally speaking, if I look, you know, and go, ah, oh, yeah, my food food choices weren't so great today or weren't so great that week, it's when I'm leaving myself behind. So I'm putting first everything that I'm doing, everything that I've committed to, etc. So that level of self-nurturing has dropped. And then because that's dropped, the body's like, well, you're not giving it to me, so I'm going to have to get it somewhere else. And it'll go for those other areas. And then you start getting frustrated at yourself because it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not being as consistent with what I want to do. So rather than giving yourself a hard time about that, is going, there's a reason here. And look at what, what is happening in the rest of your life. Is there a conversation that perhaps you're not having with someone so you've got that tension within your body and you're wanting to go for foods that numb you so you're not having to feel it? Or is there a decision that you have to make that you've been avoiding or um, whatever? Or are you in delay with something that you know you need to complete but it's just dragging along and then you've got that tension? So, so much of how we live affects food and then affects the choices that we're going to with either food being medicine or having a negative impact on the body. I'd love to offer something around relationships and food as well, because when we, I mean, if you're working in an office and you have a communal space for food, it's a great opportunity for conversations about food, but also it's a great opportunity to uh, lead the way uh, without expecting other people to follow but if there is that I mean every every week we used to have um, a Friday morning tea and I could never eat anything one because I didn't really want to have the sugar first thing in the morning but what I, when I voiced that there were so many other people who didn't want it either and so I started bringing in chopped up carrots or cucumbers or apples um, and then someone else started bringing in um, onion bhajis and you know like there was a everyone from around our unit we were very multicultural everyone bought something in each week we then did a roster and it, we would have a different country's um, food each week so we got to know each other outside our area of work as well we we, we always had to have a savory and we always had to have a sweet um, and it made such a difference to how we interact interacted with each other and interrelated and it improved our work relationship because we connected on a on a different level um, and and introduced a what might be odd for some was very normal for me it then I then gave permission for others to say yeah I don't want to eat cake at 10 o'clock in the morning either um, I'm so grateful for the carrots and then everyone else was bringing the carrots and and yeah do you see what I'm saying it was so mm. beautiful to just offer an alternative and notice how many other people actually wanted that alternative as well that's gold it's like someone has to go first so yeah. yeah I love how you say that and then other people go yeah you know I didn't really like that too when you were talking it, it brought up the um picture as well of the expectations that we have so it's like oh it's their birthday you know I need to do a cake otherwise they're not going to feel loved because they haven't got a birthday cake or they haven't got candles to blow out etc but 
you know, really stopping and going, is that someone who actually likes cake? Or if there's a feeling to have the cake, let's have some other alternatives as well. So be that with celebrations, be that with our evening meals that we're preparing for family, um, be that with gatherings or whatever it is. It's, it's like consider yourself, consider what you feel like having and then see what other options there are versus what we've always traditionally done and then seeing how that works for you. Can this might be feel free to pull me back on track and anyone who's listening feel free to say get back on track if I am off track but with the words that we use around food and to ourselves or in our families they are very they're very important because if we demonize certain foods or you know champion other foods it really does set us up for that failure um, and I just feel that that's quite important to understand in terms of our our being our medicine for ourselves is willpower and the harm of denying and feeling like we have to be perfect and great and good and then how that might play out in the family where you look and you look and you might think someone's a bit overweight and you go I don't think you should have a second helping or you need to cut down or those those words that you use that actually um, have massive impacts later in life on, on those people and whether anyone on this call I mean I certainly have examples of that in my childhood I've made a conscious effort to not try and pass that on you know that it, it is worth considering our relationship with the words around food and the impact yeah definitely and it goes back to what we were saying before about um, you know, dish, having food put on our plates and, and the expectation of eating it or I'll seem like I'm rude if I'm not eating it. Um, there's, there's just so much that is, is a subconscious process um, when it comes to food and even what we cook, is it, is it what we've been brought up with or do we venture out and try different dishes? Um, do we feel confident in the kitchen? Do we not feel confident in the kitchen? So. It, it's looking at that and looking at how you can support yourself with whatever could be impacting with the variety you offer yourself or your food choices or how you feel about cooking as well. Um, I, I was talking to a lady the other day and she said, you know, I've just got to the stage where I just hate cooking the evening meal and I feel such an expectation to cook it. And her kids were, were grown up uh, or, you know, early, late teens, early 20s. And then, you know, it's like, well, why do you feel you need to? You're living in a house full of adults and bringing that to the table, having a discussion about that um, so that there isn't that resentment around, around preparing food or food in general as well. And another point that you mentioned, Lucy, is the denial aspect. And, you know, if we've got these thoughts where you just can't budge because you're just going, I just feel like having that packet of chips and you're trying not to have them and then they're sitting over there and you want them and you're going through this thought process with yourself. Well, that's actually sometimes no different than actually having them. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. having them and then feeling how you feel afterwards and going, did that work for me? And if it did work for you, well, that's cool. Or if you start to feel that you're feeling a bit more racy because of the salt in it, then great, that's your learning because it has to be for you. It can't be what other people are saying. You know, it has to be you going, actually, this doesn't work for me anymore. Just like you were saying, Lucy, with your husband, feeling in his body, that doesn't work for me, yet the rest of the family, that's fine. Yeah. 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 
and that that that's the whole gift of getting to know the relationship with your body as opposed to someone else telling you what you can and should have because that brings the accountability back to ourselves as well and um, we then don't they we don't blame anyone else which brings in a couple of great words that I really enjoy which is you know the the collusion that goes around making sure that food that doesn't really work for us is in the house so I watch my husband and my eldest collude about having chocolate biscuits in the house when everyone might have said let's not get the chocolate biscuits because they never last and you know we can't stop eating them let's just not buy them but you know, within a couple of shots, there's like, oh, should we just get some? Just some. Come on, let's do it. And there's a collusion that goes on. And then everyone else in the family's going, really? Why did you bring them back in? Yeah. But there's a, you've got, you've got to all kind of go, all right, would, are there some foods that we really just say, just not in the house? If we have them out of the house, let's do it. But what's the environment we're creating at home that gives us a more, you know, a more supportive choice so we we don't tend to have that in and then there might be you know my my daughter always has the option to get in her car and go late night shopping for whatever it is she wants but it gives her the space to think three sometimes four times about whether she wants to go or not or whether actually she's tired and just needs to go to bed it's that that conspiring and you know colluding to make things happen has been quite an entertaining process Mm. And, and um so often you can feel too, you know, that you, at the time when you're shopping and you're going down the aisles and you're seeing all this stuff that you go, ah, yeah, I'd love to have that, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. Or yeah. just putting a few extra things in your trolley just in case visitors come or just in case, you know, the kids need it. But it's interesting because you go, well, if I know that that's not gonna work for my body, why am I then putting it in the trolley for the kids? So yeah. there's a whole thing around that of oh, I'll just give them a treat or you know they like that so I want to make them feel better. It's just it's just really cool, isn't it, to stop and go yeah why is that? Why would I do that? And quite often when we're putting those things in the trolley, they're actually things that we would like to have. And then yes. when you're at home and you're having a moment of weakness, so to speak, and you open the cupboard and you see it there that you've bought for guests, I'm sure it's going to be pretty hard not to have it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's um you know it's just yeah it's just going what what works for us what works for the people in the house and um just considering some of the the choices that we've been making go for it Katie doing too much um, which perfectionism in itself is such a a big topic and again there's lacing that can happen just as we've talked about food and what's influencing our choices there's a lacing that can happen in the pressure that we put ourselves, the expectations that we put on ourselves in doing too much, saying yes to too much, and the effect that that has on you, on your body, on your food choices, how you feel, and on your well-being as a whole. So that podcast is on the 25th of July at 12 p.m. And if you do want to participate or get the recording, you do need to book into that. Each one needs to be booked into so Lucy, is there anything else in finishing that you'd like to add for today? Just that I have loved it and I'm going to look completely afresh at 
my um, relationship with food inspired by having the conversation today. So hopefully I get some company and, and we'll, uh, we'll spot the marketing tricks and have some humor as we walk around the, uh, the uh, doing our shopping from for the next few weeks. Yeah, and look, enjoy everyone. Um, enjoy anything that you may have connected to today for yourself. And, you know, it's a big one food. So well done for going there with us. Appreciate it and look forward to um, spending time with you in the future.